Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I know it has been um, a while since I was on the air last, and um, for some of you, or rather I should say for many, maybe you all were wondering when I would come back on the air next. However, I do recall saying the last time that I would try to get back on the air before Christmas, and what do you know, today's the 19th. And it's six days before Christmas, so the good news is that um, I was able to fulfill my promise and that um, I wanted to make sure that I would be back on the air again uh, before uh, Christmas Day to let you all know where we're going to be going exactly next in terms of where our time machine will be taking us in the world of uh, not just podcasting, but in the world of um, history and what we're going to be learning exactly next. I know that um, a fair number of my uh, podcast uh, series discussions have talked about um, the American Revolution. After all, that is probably one of my favorite, um, more unique um, favorite uh, chapters of American history, or I should say early American history. But we should keep in mind, too, that whenever we hear the American Revolution, it's not always confined to just the uh, war front. the American Revolution obviously was a movement that had um, begun well before the first shots were fired um, around the world. That uh, famous phrase by Ralph Waldo Emerson, uh, most notably from the battles of uh, Lexington and Concord, which took place on April the 19th of 1775. But where we're going to be going next um, has to do um, with a particular individual whom was not born in uh, colonial America, or I should say, eventually in what we would call the United States, but he does make his way to America. So I'm sure some of you are probably wondering who exactly would this person be? Because after all, isn't it fair to say that there were um, a handful of um, forefathers? uh, There, We do know, uh, based upon... um, past book discussions from uh, signing their lives away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Declaration of Independence, as well as uh, the same with regards to signing their rights away about the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the Constitution, that there were uh, some signers who actually came over from Europe to America uh, to start um, lives in a better, um, rather to start their lives in a uh, better um, world where there would be more of an opportunity to um, develop and um, and grow to where they could have a better chance at making um, a name for themselves rather than, say, staying put in their uh, origin um, country. I mean, after all, there were signers who, who were originally from uh, Scotland or from uh, England who actually would go on to sign the uh, Declaration of Independence as well as uh, the, the U.S. Constitution. Um, so, is it fair to say that uh, our next uh, discussion does have something to do about a particular individual who uh, was born before the American Revolution and was alive to witness the American Revolution and still uh, contributed to the greater society in the post-American Revolution, um, post-American Revolutionary War world? Uh, the answer is yes. You know. I could tell you all the answer now, but if I told you all the answer this split second, then many of you all would wonder, well, where do we go next? In other words, I I will tell you all the answer at some point, 
here before the end of this uh, podcast. But before we do get to the um, introduction of what we're going to be discussing next, um, I received something in the mail the other day from the um, American uh, Preservation Trust um, or American Trust Preservation uh, Society. I um, sent them a check um, for probably about twenty-five dollars. Uh, it was it would be it would go towards. Uh, helping uh, save uh, land on battlefields. Why does that matter? Well, I was blown away. I was blown away that only a small percentage of actual uh, battlefield uh, lands are still actually protected by the National Park Service. When I think of uh, battlefields, I think of both the American Revolution and the uh, Civil War. I'm not far from Yorktown, as a matter of fact, my wife and I, we were in Williamsburg last weekend uh, for a weekend getaway. And as always, we came away learning something new. And when we went to Yorktown for part of the day, I had to remind myself of just how much uh, Yorktown has changed over the years. People, When people think of uh, ports and shipping, they tend to think of Norfolk at the time uh, of the American Revolution as being one of Virginia's busiest ports because Richmond is still at that time in its infancy, although Richmond does become the capital of Virginia before the American Revolutionary War ends, people fail to realize that Yorktown was one of Virginia's busiest ports. That's where pretty much all the tobacco that was cultivated in Williamsburg it was sent to Yorktown, and then um, it uh, departed Yorktown uh, to make its way across the Atlantic Ocean to um, markets in England where the tobacco would be sold. So whenever you think of ports in Virginia in the uh, 18th century, the one that you should think of is the port of Yorktown. But as for uh, battlefield uh, protection, it was um, I was really stunned uh, to realize that only about 20% of our uh, major uh, battlefields are actually protected by the National Park Service. Many, um, what do you call it, private agencies like the American uh, Preservation Trust uh, Society, or the battle, actually it's the Battlefield uh, Trust um, group, they, they have um, been able to protect about um, close to 55,000 acres of land in uh, 20 states, and that, um, amount of land is um, they own that uh, revolves around uh, major battlefields. For example, they just recently acquired some land um, that will be um, secured to where no development, that is commercial development, will take place at Antietam, uh, which was the bloodiest single day battle in the Civil War. And they also recently acquired um, the protection of land along the Battle of uh, Yorktown at the actual Yorktown Battlefield Park, which will no longer be able to fall into the hands of developers. I think it's important that there ought to be as much land preserved for um, events that happened from the past, even when they represented dark periods of time in greater American history, most notably the Civil War. They need to be preserved because, after all, Battlefields do tell a story. Sometimes they don't tell, may not tell the most pleasant of stories, but they do need to be preserved because, after all, sacrifices were made. Yes, some people may not view the sacrifices as appropriate. Of course, we all are entitled to our own opinion, 
regardless of the matter. But battlefields do represent triumph and they also represent tragedies. But in the end, they do need to be preserved so that future generations can understand a much better story of why the sacrifices were made. So if you're looking for a good organization to either belong to or just to give some money to, uh, this uh, Battlefield um, Trust organization is very well worth um, looking into because they, um, you know, like any organization, they need their support. But even giving a small amount of money can go a long way towards helping uh, this organization um, preserve land, that is land uh, from a battlefield, so that uh, developers would not be able to get their hands on it and turn it into a commercial use. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with um, creating new jobs, but at the same time, don't the living, don't the dead below deserve to um, live in, you know, rest in peace? Uh, don't, doesn't undisturbed land deserve to have some peace as well? I think so, especially if it's land that um, was impacted from a war, or not just a war, but from a battle, whether it was in the American Revolution or in the uh, Civil War. But that's uh, my take on it. So um, I think it's time that we um, kick into gear and uh, focus now on the introduction of where we're going next. How about I start, start off by telling you um, this much. Is it fair to say that before the American Revolutionary War began, that even the United States, not the United States, but I should say colonial America, is it fair to say that even colonial America felt, the, um, felt a, a strong impact behind the Enlightenment movement taking place 3,000 miles across the ocean in Europe? Absolutely. Is it fair to say that even many of our prominent forefathers were inspired by works of uh, various um, Enlightenment thinkers across the ocean living in Europe? Absolutely. So, here we go. The Age of Enlightenment was a revolutionary movement that had never been seen within European society prior to 17th and 18th centuries. The Enlightenment promoted new intellectual and philosophical concepts, enabling men, did you hear that folks? Not man by himself, but men, many men, to challenge existing status quos you know, when someone says, let's preserve or maintain the status quo, what does that mean? Maintain the existing policies. You know, we hear people challenging even in today's modern times that some, some existing status quos aren't uh, relevant. They may have a point. On the other hand, sometimes it's not a good, it, it, it's okay to preserve certain uh, status quos. But there again, it's all about what's at stake. And, of course, there again, everyone's entitled to their, you know, own opinion on it. That's, you know, I guess a good example of what we call free speech. So, yes, the Enlightenment promoted new intellectual and philosophical concepts, enabling men to challenge existing status quos. Now, in the 17th and 18th century, what existing status quos 
were out there that allowed men to challenge what was before them. How about a monarch's authority? Ah, of course, when I think of a monarch's authority, like in the 18th century, I think of um, all the grievances that parliament um, or the injustices that were incurred by many of, of the colonists in colonial America uh, by parliament and the crown. Of course, when I think of those grievances and injustices, it's fair to say that we tend to think of like the Stamp Act, the Townshend duties, you know, taxation without representation, um, you know, passing legislation without the direct consent of the people whom are being uh, governed below. So a monarch's authority there, I think of King George III. But when I think, of, if one were to ask me, is there another monarch that you could think of from Europe who, um, whose um, existing status quo policies or beliefs would have come into great question, um, I think of uh, the late 16th century in, in France, or most notably the, the very end of the 17th century when um, Louis, I want to say it was either Louis XIV or Louis XV, um, revoked the Edict of Nantes. And that edict had allowed uh, French Huguenots, what we would call Protestants, to uh, worship their faith freely without any um, infringement from higher authority. The Huguenots were in the minority. In other words, they were not a part of the greater Catholic faith, but they had been accepted um, for close to about 100 years. They had been um, accepted, and their... Um, we call it religious practices, did receive a certain degree of toleration. But sadly, when the Edict of Nantes was revoked by Louis XIV or the XV, and pardon me for not getting that straight, and I do apologize, but what I can tell you is at least I know that it was a ruler whose name was Louis, that when that Louis revoked the Edict of Nantes, it led to mass persecution of French uh, Protestants, or what we call French Huguenot Protestants. Many were forced into exile, uh, and many of them ended up coming over to America to start a better life. So there, there we have it, folks, a monarch's authority. You know, what is, a mon what is appropriate for a monarch to do and what is not appropriate? Uh, how about challenging a particular uh, religious institution's authority, like the Catholic Church? Hey, if you didn't uh, take up your allegiance with the Catholic Church, you ran the risk of being persecuted. Isn't it fair to say that the Catholic Church pretty much uh, made it clear that if you challenged um, a doctrine of theirs, that you could be um, sent to jail and not have proper representation before you, that the Catholic Church could, could find a way to take you out and only for you as the individual never to be heard from again by, um, by your family? And, of course, when I think of, um, at one time, you know, the Catholic Church being the most predominant church in terms of how much authority it had, you know, the Catholic Church, not only from a religious doctrinal authority, but how about authority over what they controlled in terms of land? Many people don't realize that, well, it was one thing when the Protestant Reformation began taking place, most notably when King Henry VIII was in uh, power. Henry VIII... Um, one of the reasons for why he broke away from the Catholic Church was because the Pope at the time refused to grant him an annulment. In other words, um, 
Henry VIII didn't believe in the annulment process. He just wanted a divorce, but the Pope wasn't going to grant it to him, so that was one of the reasons for why he wanted to um, break away from the Catholic Church. But Henry VIII also did not like the idea that the Catholic Church was controlling all of the land, not just the land that was above, but what lied below the land. That is, what lied below the surface above, the natural resources, Land, natural resources, those things go hand in hand. So it was one thing for one religious institution to be controlling something, but to control everything in the eyes of many Enlightenment thinkers and people from within the inner circle, that is too much authority that should not be uh, tolerated. So it's one thing to you know, yes, question a monarch's authority, which many of the uh, Enlightenment thinkers were doing, as well as challenging a particular religious institution's authority, like the Catholic Church. However, there were many Enlightenment thinkers who believed that the overall expansion of religious toleration was an absolute essential in order for a greater society to function. Think about it. It's one thing to have um, want to sever your ties, not just so much with the Catholic Church, but sever your ties from leaders from within the Catholic Church who are pretty much dictating how you are to go about living your life? Well, of course, you know, eventually we have what's called the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And, of course, the Anglican Church is like their own version of the Catholic Church, except they don't have a pope, but the, um, the minister certainly exercises his authority to tell you what you are to believe and what you are not to question. So it's one thing to be Protestant, but just because you're a Protestant, it may not necessarily mean that you have the same freedoms as those whom um, have taken up allegiance with what we eventually become to know as the Church of England or the Anglican Church. And then eventually, one day from now, one day later on down the road, there would be many in America who would want to advocate separation of church and state. If there's one man, being a Virginian, whom advocated this, it was none other than Mr. Thomas Jefferson. The Enlightenment movement allowed, it, not just from a political, or I should say from a religious perspective, but the movement itself allowed for scientific breakthroughs to evolve, replacing ones that had existed for centuries on hand, most notably uh, when I think of breakthroughs, how about uh, Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus? He, he devised what was called the heliocentric model. What I know about the heliocentric model, and it's a fundamental answer, is that he, his breakthrough discovery allowed man to realize that the planets did not revolve around Earth. Rather, the heliocentric model made it clear that the planets orbited, or I should say revolved around the sun. Prior to Nicholas Copernicus, and even the Catholic Church supported this, they supported a system or a belief that had come up in ancient uh, Greek civilization, um, the period of ancient Greek civilization under Aristotle, whom had devised the geocentric model, which pretty much held that all the planets, or the existing planets of the time, uh, revolved around Earth. And Copernicus proved them wrong. 
And it's not so much that Copernicus himself proved uh, skeptics wrong, but he questioned the Catholic Church. Hey, you got to take a risk, even if it means upsetting the officials from above. And many uh, many people were willing to, to do this. And for some, they it meant going to jail. And it meant for some going to exile because of it. But hey, there does come a point in time where you do have to challenge something and say, hey, enough is enough. And that's really, in a sense, right here, folks, what the Enlightenment is, the Age of Enlightenment is um, getting into. It's going beyond what the what the parameters have been holding us back for some time. Well, for most individuals, the Enlightenment uh, usually draws names like John Locke, David Hume, Voltaire, Francis Bacon, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Adam Smith, to name a few. While those men left their marks within the societies they lived under being predominantly European, one political philosopher managed to address everyone from the greater society, no matter where their status rank stood. So is it fair to say that um, men like Rousseau and Voltaire, for example, that while, yes, they did have an impact upon the people they encountered, it's probably fair to say that it was within an inner circle of those whom whom already had some form of higher-level education. Yes. But as for this other man, this one political philosopher, he seems to be able to get his word across to everyone in society. Is it fair to say that this man could be like his own version of Jesus? And the only reason I say that is because Jesus didn't cater to one sector of society. Jesus was willing to come across as someone who could represent all of mankind. I would say that's the case. This particular man um, whom uh, managed to address everyone from the greater society, no matter where their status rank stood, would one day make his political presence known on American soil at a time when American morale had reached its lowest point. Well, I think there have been many of times in America's history where morale has, in fact, reached its lowest point. But what's, what's going to be unique about this particular study is that um, when I mentioned just a moment ago about how when American morale had reached its lowest point, there will be a particular piece of work by this man whom, um, whom will, the work itself will go about helping restore a cause that will not only make American people feel better about themselves, but a cause that, that is still worth fighting for. The political philosopher whom we will be learning about in this next book study is none other than, none other than Thomas Paine. I knew I was going to eventually tell you all who, who we were going to be learning about. But now you have that answer. But it doesn't mean that we're through uh, just yet. But yes, the person we're going to be learning about, or rather I should say the political philosopher, a more appropriate um, title, the political philosopher whom we will be learning about in our next book study is none other than Mr. Thomas Paine. 
Thomas Paine wasn't born into privilege. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to learn more about his early um, upbringings. But I will just tell you this much right now. He was not born into privilege. But would somehow make a name for himself through sheer determination, which meant overcoming obstacles where many in his own hometown, or I should say village, could only dream of escaping out from to better their own lives. So it's fair to say that, that perhaps where Thomas Paine lives, it could be fair to say that whoever is in control of the land is in a select um, minority that represents a small percentage, but yet while that small percentage controls all the land, it's fair to say that people like Thomas Paine and his family and countless others are, are a majority whom are left out to where they have little or no say over how they could even go about bettering themselves going forward in the future. Philosophers like John Locke, Jean Jacques Rousseau to Voltaire went about inspiring people from within their inner, cir inner circles whom were already well literate. Well, as I mentioned earlier, that yes, those people already had some degree of formal education, but, but that degree of formal education already uh, gave them the opportunity to expand upon what they had already taken from one setting and now go into the next, um, into the next, um, new setting. For Thomas Paine, his teachings, both written and spoken, or I should say verbal, sought to inspire men from all settings. And what I mean from all settings is, how about homes? And, you know, when we think of homes, you know, we think of, yes, homes that, say, middle class people live in, homes that more well-to-do people live in like upper middle class or upper class um, families. And then, of course, sometimes when we think of homes, we think of uh, homes where people who are, you know, struggling to get by, um, they may not have the best housing arrangements, but it's all they can afford. So is it fair to say that even in Thomas Paine's time, and this is something that we will learn about, not just in this introduction or say in the next podcast episode, but it will be something that um, won't, that can't be escaped. Is it fair to say that even in Thomas Paine's time, living in England, where he came from in England, is it fair to say that he saw housing inequities? Absolutely. So when I think of homes here, Thomas Paine's um, teachings, both written and verbal, he sought to inspire men from all various home settings, like small dwellings. That is, when I think of small dwellings, how about homes where the destitute and the poor lived? And believe it or not, folks, how about grand estates, palaces? Is it fair to say that people living in the grand estates and palaces were inspired by Thomas Paine's would, would go on to become inspired by Thomas Paine's uh, written and verbal teachings. Yes. Paine's messages, wherever they resounded, achieved breakthroughs. And what I mean by breakthroughs, they, they would often result in a handful of the following. 
One such breakthrough would have resulted in, say, overthrowing despotic rulers. What I mean by despotic rulers, folks? Those who govern harshly. They govern in a tyrannical manner where people below either have no say in, in how the government is run, or their opinions simply just don't matter to where no matter how hard they try to voice their opinions, they're always going to get left behind. And if it means being sent to prison because of what they are um, standing up for and nothing's being done to look after their well-being, then I could see how uh, many who would be who would feel oppressed would want to go to such uh, measures as to overthrow a monarch. But of course, one would say if you overthrow a monarch tomorrow, what are you going to replace it with? And whatever you choose to replace it with, is, it, is that new form of government still going to be around a year later? Of course, though, there are always pros and cons, and history has shown to us just what can happen when one system of government no longer works and something else gets replaced. It's always going to be a question of whether, it's always going to come down to a 50-50 scenario of whether or not, whether or not a new form of government will survive, not just short-term, but long-term. So, yes, overthrowing despotic rulers. You know, Thomas Paine's um, messages also led to instigating revolutions. Is it fair to say that even some of Thomas Paine's works could have led to um, greater means of uh, men wanting to um, eventually declare their separation from England? Yes. How about... Um, how about enhancing the power of poor farmers? Think about it, folks. Poor farmers. You know, they don't have 275-acre estates. or they, they, don't, they don't even have anywhere close to 275 acres of land. You know, most poor farmers are lucky if they have 10 acres at best to survive on. But think about it. Do the, do the everyday poor farmers, do they have an opportunity to have their powers enhanced by the means of one man's work, being that of Thomas Paine's? Sure. All of which would forever alter the greater Western world, a.k.a. the Western Hemisphere. So think about it, folks. Breakthroughs from overthrowing despotic rulers, instigating revolutions, to enhancing the power of the poor, like poor farmers, all of the all of this being in the form of Payne's messages and his messages, whether they were written or verbal, would one day go about forever altering the greater Western world, Western Hemisphere. Wouldn't it be fair to say that Thomas Paine represented himself as someone whom sought to do what was best for everyone within the greater society? Yes. Paine himself attributed his life's work approach by saying the following, and this is in quotations, folks. This will probably come up again in, in, in many other podcasts. Listen carefully. My country is the world, and my religion is to do good. Did you hear that again, folks? My country is the world, and my religion is to do good. What does that necessarily mean? All right, well, this is what I came up with, and I hope that what I came up with is something that you all uh, can relate to, especially as, with regards to this next series involving Thomas Paine. 
For Thomas Paine, his life's work wasn't confined to one nation. So think about it. My country is the world. Okay, we know he's from England. But is it fair to say that Thomas Paine's going to revolve his whole life with regards to the world around where he came from being England? No. So his life's work wasn't confined to one nation, but rather to expand upon what he achieved in one setting and take existing successes that he attained and bring them into new environments where reforms themselves had long been overdue. Okay, so yes, you can take your successes in one setting and transfer them into another environment. Okay, you're not, you may not be guaranteed that reform's going to happen overnight, but with time, there can be some forms of meaningful results that will be achieved. Where reforms themselves, uh, I say, Paine's religion didn't revolve around what he practiced when attending church. Okay, the second part of the quote was, my, and my religion is to do good. So, yes, Paine's religion didn't revolve around what he practiced when attending church. But it was his faith, his personal faith as a whole entity, that enabled him to inspire countless others in going about empowering themselves to do more than what was previously expected. For Thomas Paine, religion wasn't to be confined inside a church. In other words, you know, yes, you can go attend church on Sunday, but, you know, but is it fair to say that you should expand upon what you've learned in church on a Sunday and take those um, teachings from a, from a minister and exercise them out in the greater uh, world, out in the greater public setting, where others can be inspired. Yes. So for Thomas Paine, religion wasn't to be confined inside a church, but rather to take the teachings from within and go out into that greater world where acts of kindness to empowering people would have had no limits. Whereas some societies granted rights and privileges to a select group, aka the gentry, or rather to those whom would have only whom would have um, sworn allegiance, like say to the Catholic Church or what we call the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the early version of the modern day Episcopal Church. Paine's ultimate objective was simple and that he viewed all men as equals, regardless of where, of where they uh, stood in the greater society, or, or the greater uh, society of uh, classification. So in other words, if you're in the lower tier of society, if, if, you know, if you end up being destitute, if you are destitute and poor, then you should still be seen as an equal. You know, you don't have to have 500 acres or more of land but you should still be given some op you should still be given an opportunity to succeed in life just like someone who um, is placed in the upper one to two percent of society being the uh, landed gentry you know yes we are learning about going to be learning about thomas Paine, but um i'm sure many of y'all are wondering um did you leave something out kirk i'll admit i did but I wasn't going to forget about it. So what exactly, uh, what book are we going to be talking about here involving Thomas Paine? 
Well, I can give you a hint here that uh, the, the man who wrote the book was also the author of the last book we discussed, American um, Tempest, How the Boston Tea Party Sparked a Revolution. Harlow Giles Unger. Well, this book here is titled Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence. If there's one major significant work that many in America and elsewhere around the world know regarding Thomas Paine, okay, when I think of one particular major work that he did, and we're going to find out that he did many other uh, works, that is, many other uh, write, writings, but if there's one in particular that always comes to my mind, it's none other than common sense. So in this next study, we will discover just how influential of a writer Thomas Paine himself was, which includes learning about people whom benefited from his words in their time of need. You know, I mentioned earlier that there was a piece of work that Paine uh, would go on to write that would... Um, that came at such a good time when American morale had sadly uh, reached its lowest point. Of course, if I give too much of that away now, then it, then you all are going to think, well, Kirk, why should you even be teaching this now? So hang on there tight, folks. On the flip side, Thomas Paine um, would publish essays in his lifetime that... Um, led to resentment amongst men whom had been inspired from his earlier works. Why is it now that Thomas Paine is publishing essays that are going to lead to opposition from people whom had, whom had benefited from earlier time? Well, it is fair to say that even the most famous of people, while they achieved many great successes, it is fair to say that even some of our forefathers were not on the best of terms with other forefathers. It is fair to say that some of our forefathers um, did not um, part on the best of terms with other uh, forefathers. I could tell you real quick that even Thomas Jefferson and George Washington um, had a falling out. And because of the uh, matter that um, that led to the falling out, uh, Washington was unable to forgive Thomas Jefferson. Even, um, that's just an example right there of where forefathers have at times not always parted on the best of terms with one another. So it, I should point out right now that uh, based upon what I just said a moment ago, that Thomas Paine did, would go on to publish essays in his lifetime that did lead to resentment amongst um, some men whom uh, were already inspired from, pre, from his earliest works. But as time went along, there were other works down the road that, um, that did lead to um, some men uh, burning bridges with him and then some just not wanting to have anything to do with him. But at the same time, there were those whom still um, empathized with him and did feel that, hey, he still needs to be um, valued for who he is. Well, no matter what he uh, published, Thomas Paine won the hearts of many in America and elsewhere, most notably Europe. But it's fair to admit that his intentions, or rather purposes, were seen as revolutionary 
meaning that everyday people had greater means of empowering themselves. Is it fair to say that based upon what whatever Thomas Paine saw in his early years as a child growing up, that he wanted to make a difference by inspiring many others who say were not able to um, get out of their misfortunes or get out of their um, circumstances that they were in, that perhaps Thomas Paine, by writing so many works, handwritten works, that he wanted to inspire hope in those whom were in so much need of hope. I would say so. In other words, anything that Thomas Paine wrote, even if it meant upsetting those from within an inner circle or just, you know, upsetting people in general, it is fair to say that all of his works, and we will be learning a lot about many of his other works in this uh, study, that yes, there were people who benefited, there were people who who were offended, but in the end, it is fair to say that all of his works represented a unique form of revolutionary um, understanding. Uh, they represented a break from the past. Thomas Paine was more than just an author, and we will learn everything there is to know about him than previously known before. No matter where Paine's journeys took him, he always seemed to leave an imprint, for better or worse, depending upon the circumstances at stake. One does have to wonder, though, where, where in fact would Thomas Paine stand in the annals of our greater um, history when compared to other prominent forefather leaders like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, to name a few. Perhaps it's best to discover the real truth behind Thomas Paine's legacy by means of going behind the scenes and deciding for ourselves where this common man ought to be ranked. Revolutionary leaders have come in all shapes and sizes, but Thomas Paine must be viewed as a man whom led revolutionary movements from various facets of life. We've all endured our fair shares of trying times in our lives. But Thomas Paine ought to be seen as a forefather whom laid the groundwork for overcoming for overcoming the position from subjects. In other words, is it fair to say that we all start out as a subject? Yes, we all start out as subjects. But is it fair to say that even subjects themselves have the power to do something revolutionary, no matter how big or small it is, whether it's something in their own lives or something that will benefit the greater society. Well, Thomas Paine, yes, he ought to be seen as the forefather whom laid the groundwork for overcoming the position from subjects to one of independent thinkers, a.k.a. leaders, men governing being able to govern without the assistance or support from a monarch or from a, not just from a monarch, but say from a um, religious institution. Separation of church and state. Weren't there men like Jefferson who firmly believed that the church should not be telling the government how to govern? Didn't Jefferson not want the government to be telling the church how to go about teaching to the congregation. 
In other words, the church should be should have the power to make independent decisions for itself on how to best preach its sermons to the congreg to it to the entire congregation, and the government should be making uh, decisions for itself that um, not just for itself, but the government should be making decisions for the people that will benefit the greater society and not just a select few. So yes, Thomas Paine, it's fair to say, did in fact lay the groundwork for overcoming, or I should say tr for transitioning from, from position of subject to one where the greater society could become where the people of a greater society could become independent thinkers and make decisions for themselves without having to always be told from a ruler above whom was only looking out for himself. Well, I have no doubts that this uh, next study is going to be a good one, but it will require lots of uh, thinking. It will require um, understanding why Thomas Paine would one day leave England to come to America. But it, it will also require understanding that the work doesn't stop in one nation. It might require going somewhere else, and it might require maybe going elsewhere in Europe and trying to get a nation to change its ways of governing that he has known for himself, being that of pain, whom he has known for some time is no longer relevant. Well, thank you for your time as always, and um, I look forward to, uh, to being back on the air again next, and I do hope to be back on the air again next before Christmas. But uh, once again, thanks to all of you who have been listening since June of last year, or some of you are recent uh, listeners. Just uh, continue to keep up the good work and keep spreading the word out about um anchor because for one it's free the opportunities are limitless and once you get started there's no going back but for those of you who are interested in podcasting there are plenty of other good sites out there but um, it, it's a great way to get the word out and for those of you who are um, thirsty for more uh, knowledge when it comes to history well continue to um, stay put with my um, podcasts because um, I will continuously make sure that you uh, come away with something new. So thank you again um, for listening. Uh, you guys are um, amazing. I cannot tell you how much your support means, especially knowing that I'm in 44 nations outside the United States. I hope that that number will continue to expand, and I know that it will with time. But, um, but it is um, amazing to know that um, that there are so many people out there in the world who are interested in listening to, um, to history in general. I know history is not pretty. I know that history does have its uh, dark moments. I know that there have been wrongs throughout um, our history. The most important thing, though, is that we have to learn from the past in order to make sure that those mistakes don't happen again in the present and, or, and the same for the future. But I do think it takes all of us to um, try to make a difference and to keep history alive because uh, if we don't, then we only have ourselves to blame for extinguishing the flame for all the wrong reasons. So keep this flame going, and, and one way of keeping the flame going alive is to keep getting the word out for others who want to know more about an assortment of subjects that they may have already have information on previously, 
but are yearning to want to know more about the subjects at hand. Thank you again, and um, have a good start to your week. And again, I hope to be back on the air again here before Christmas later.